Hello, ladies. Welcome to the Hourly to Exit podcast. I'm your host, Erin Austin. My goal with every episode is to share information and resources to help you achieve the next level of growth in your expertise-based business. We all know generating income from our expertise is pretty easy. The challenge is in scaling and building a business that can run without you. Join me here every week to make sure you are building an asset that can be used to fund your goals and your legacy. Before we get started though, one little disclaimer, because I'm a lawyer. The information I share on the podcast is general in nature and is provided for information purposes only. It is not to be relied upon nor construed as providing legal advice or legal opinions about any specific issue or set of facts. Now, here we go. Hello, ladies. Thank you so much for joining me on Hourly to Exit. I'm your host, Erin Austin, and my guest today is Kate Reiner. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm very excited about our episode today. Let me tell you a little bit about Kate. Kate Reiner is the vice president and senior broker at Sunbelt Business Advisors of Southwest Ohio. Not only is Kate a certified business intermediary, but she is also a certified exit planning advisor. She has a passion for working with business owners, preparing their businesses for sale, as well as selling their businesses. Kate wants to make sure that business owners are set up for success. I love that. Now, I wanted to have you on because the sale process is such a mystery to so many people. I mean, you know, what we read about is like the gigantic, you know, like multi-million, multi-billion, you know, superstar sales. We don't hear about just kind of regular business owners like us. Um, selling our businesses. And so it's like, it's an other people thing, but it's not, it's an everybody thing, you know, presuming that they're ready for it. And also I, I feel, you know, this podcast is geared towards uh, female founders and kind of bringing that side, like kind of that emotional life transition side to the conversation as well. That's not just some people just build their business, like just to sell it. Like that's the whole point of building it. And I think a lot of women come to it from a different angle. I know I certainly did where, you know, you're raising a kid and it provides some flexibility. And then over the years, you know, it grows and then you're like, oh, there's a business here. Maybe I should, you know, start thinking, taking, a, 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 you know, thinking bigger for it. And so, uh, you know, we have to make that shift as well from kind of lifestyle business to a business that's just not me, you know. And I'm hoping we can talk about like one, demystify the whole thing and, uh, you know, talk a little bit about the mindset shifts that you have seen owners have to go through as they kind of, you know, get ready to exit their businesses. So, yeah. And oh my gosh, I mean, I love talking about this. It's such a wild process because it looks like on paper, it should be so streamlined and it's like, this happens and then this, and then this, and then this, but along the way, there are so many variables that play into the actual sale process that are really out of both the buyer, seller, and broker's control because you've got financing people involved. Financing that plays such a huge part of it. So yeah, it is. 
I'm in the middle of, I'm supposed to have like four deals closed by the end of next month. So it is, <laughs> um, and that's the other thing, like it's a super hot market right now and it's been just progressively getting busier and busier. But I think during COVID people heard a lot about, oh, you know, the market's so hot to sell your business right now. And it was like, that was private equity. That was these larger deals that were 15, 20, 30, hundred million dollar deals. That was a really hot market. Our smaller businesses that when I talk about that, talking about, um, let's say, EBITDA of up to $2 million. And that's really the high end of what we tend to work with. So it's earnings before um, interest tax depreciation and amortization. And then we do adjusted EBITDA or seller's discretionary earnings. So then what that also includes is owner salary. And then you've got one-time expenses or owner benefits. And that is like very high level because there are some owners where we have to make negative adjustments because they're not actually. So it's really just trying to true up the financials so that an owner, a buyer coming in really has a good idea of what the available cash flow is for debt service and capital investments and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard this. Tell me if I'm wrong about when you do that adjustment. Like, let's say, uh, you know, in my business, I'm only paying myself $100,000 out of the business. But if if you had someone who wasn't an owner, like in the role of CEO, you need to pay them more. And so you need to make sure that that is reflected in what's really available because you'd have this other expense if it was in the hands of like an independent CEO as opposed to an owner CEO. A little bit of it depends on how you're set up at business. Because when we do our cash flow analysis, we are adding back in not when you have a financing page to run through, like this is the down payment that's going to be needed. And this is what the debt service is. And like the cash flow to debt service ratio needs to be a minimum 1.25 for the banks. And, but one of the line items that we add is a new owner salary. So, um, so we would put for most businesses, like we normally, depending on what it is, like 100 to $150,000 is what we put in there. Um, just because it's a good benchmark. Now our most owners making more than that a lot of times. Yeah, because they have the rest of this cash flow to work with. But you're right. If the owner is working, say like 80 hours a week, then that's not one person that's getting replaced. So then we do make an adjustment, like a negative adjustment to the cash flow for that. For you, if you're selling your business and one person can do your job, we're not making that additional adjustment to your salary because we've got the rest of the cash flow to work with for what somebody has. And the buyer needs to make the decision about who they want to hire in and if they need to hire somebody in or saying, this is what you have to work with at this moment. Like there are a lot of people that have their family members in the business. So we'll see that where they're not getting paid fair wages. So, or like standard 
wages. So then we'll make that adjustment to the cash flow in those types of instances, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. Hey, everyone. A quick word from our sponsor, Think Beyond IP. Think Beyond IP helps your professional services firm build the essential legal and strategic foundation required to confidently scale your business by developing, protecting, and leveraging intellectual property assets. You can find us at thinkbeyondip.com. Now, back to the show. So tell me when a typical business, I know there's not one typical business, but let's, since we're talking to expertise-based businesses, so let's use as an example, a service-based business. And so when they came to you, like at what point did they come to you and how much help did they need and how do you kind of bring them into the fold and get them ready to go? Yeah. So typically our first step is it depends on where they're at kind of mentally, because most of the time we get business owners, like I got an email yesterday that says, I'm ready to talk about selling my business. Can I meet tomorrow? And it's like, okay, um, yes, absolutely. We can meet tomorrow. And all they want is the valuation to make sure that the numbers work for them to be able to retire. That is all the prep they want to do before going to market is just checking those numbers. The ideal situation is getting somebody who wants to start like on three, five, 10 years ahead of time so that we can dig in and really look at, okay, this is the trend of the industry that you're in. These are where you've got concentration issues. So like for the marketing firm, the, um, the most recent one, they had a very specialized focus on the market that they worked with. And it was very heavy based owner knowledge. So she was the face of the company. She had the industry expertise. And then her team though, did the legwork, but didn't do the strategy work. And so that made, she was a tough, tough sell while she had other clients that were outside of that industry. It was going to be a, a more challenging sell to find the right buyer for it. And because of how she ran it, the structure of the deal was different because typically our ideal situation is getting the seller paid out as much as we can upfront. It is a bit harder in service-based businesses, especially when the sellers are the face of the company to be able to do that. And that is why that planning is so important. It's like talking to business owners about, do you have salespeople or do you have other people that you can start slowly transitioning the relationships away from you where you're not their first call? But with this particular case, the seller ended up taking a larger seller note uh, because of that. And that was because the risk to the business but it wasn't like a 10-year seller note, which a seller note is where you're the bank. You are, as the seller, you're getting monthly payments. Well, it can be structured differently. Typically, there's interest involved. 
if a bank is financing a portion of it, the seller note is very dependent on the terms that the bank, which can, again, make it really challenging for business owners. But in this particular case, the buyer put down a down payment, the seller was going to hold a note for two years, and she was going to work in the business to continue to transition over and get paid in addition to. And that's another thing that is confusing sometimes for buyers is if you want the seller to stay in the business for a period of time outside of like the traditional six to eight week training, you are going to need to pay them. Like the seller note payment is not their salary. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, <laughs> that would be a good trick have, if you could get yeah. services and your note paid down. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I had that, I mean, I had a buyer for a landscaping company that he could not wrap his head around having to pay for both. And I'm like, well, this is what you're paying for the business. And then you want the seller to continue to work like 30 hours a week. He has to get paid for that because he can't go out and do anything else because he was young enough to go do something else if he wanted to. And then the challenge is again, integrating those buyers into the process and making sure that, you know, they're ready to go. And that's why like having a really solid transition plan is super important, especially on those types of deals, because you want to make sure those milestones are getting checked. Yeah, absolutely. So when I seller note versus earn out, what's the difference? Because I feel like I hear the term earn out. Yes. So earnout is when you're hitting benchmarks for the business. So if you're getting an earnout, the business is worth X today, but you think it can hit X like within the year or like, or it's a real hockey stick trajectory that you're on right now because of the client base that you have. So then it's okay. If you hit uh, you'll get a small portion up front for the business, and then you have to hit these benchmarks in order to get paid the rest of it. The tricky thing with that is, well, what are you basing that on? Are you basing it on revenue, gross margin, or that cash flow? Buyers want the cash flow, sellers want the revenue because the sellers at that point have no way to manage that P&L to make sure that the expenses aren't now. Are there workarounds to that with what's allowed to go on the P&L and the cash flow? Sure. But um, that's just, that's a negotiating point for, um, for the buyer and the seller. And then the seller note is, this is just the price. Like you're not looking to reach benchmarks in order to receive the money. Like, no, I'm getting, I'm getting paid this money. Like I am a bank. I have lent you money. I expect these payments. All right. So the risk on the seller note is just um, the, the same risk as having a loan repaid versus the earnout is a performance risk on certain milestones. Yes. Yep. Okay. All right. Very helpful. Thank you. All right. So the marketing agency comes in. She is the face. She's the expert. She doesn't have a team that could step in after her. What kind of buyer is interested in 
that type of uh, seller? Typically somebody that's already in the industry and can come in and bought the company. What ended up happening was it was a husband and wife team that purchased the company. Who didn't have an existing business, who just wanted it. Yeah, they had worked outside. They had had management experience. This was what they wanted to do. This was the industry that they wanted to get into. And, you know, there are some other types of buyers that we might have found are people that work at other marketing agencies that work lower level that um, wanted to go out and be the business owner coming in. That would have been, or another company in general wanting to acquire their customer list. So there were lots of different options for the type of buyer you're going to find. And that's really for us, the nice thing about how we market is we don't limit ourselves to those possible strategic buyers. We try and we throughout the net as wide as we can to bring in as many potential buyers as we can. Um, yeah. Well, that's the huge, the huge benefit of working with a broker, of course, is that network that you can bring and have a pre-existing resources, a Rolodex. Like, where do you find potential acquirers when you have a client? Because your client's the seller, correct? Yeah. So our client's the seller, but we are truly like also intermediaries. So our fiduciary responsibility is to the seller, but we help the buyer along the way with like trying to get their financing and trying... Um, but yes, at the end of the day, the seller, we do buy sides though, where the buyer is actually our client, but it's typically, it's not both of them. So it's one or the other. We're not double dipping. Don't work with somebody that's double dipping. Like only one side should be paying that fee. Sunbelt has the largest private MLS type listing database for businesses. So because of how many offices we've got, like 200 offices worldwide. Um, and then we also subscribe to a half dozen other websites that we post on. And that is the more traditional broker route. Larger MA deals, they will put together confidential packages and go straight to strategic buyer, potential strategic buyers or private equity groups. And it's almost like an auction. It's okay, here's the information. If you want to continue, send the NDA back by X date. Here's that additional information since you sent the NDA back. Questions are due by this date. And it's like that. Well, what we do in a similar way is as we're marketing it broadly, we go out and find what we think those strategic buyers are as well. And possible private equity groups that might be interested. And we send out, hey, you know, here's a business we thought you might be interested in. If you want more info, fill out the non-disclosure agreement and send it back to us and we'll get you more information. The reason we don't just do that though is one of our biggest um, deals, we sold a greenhouse and garden center and the buyer was living in Ecuador at the time. He was in the agricultural space already and really understood, like it was a very specific process this, this company had was they were seed to plant. So somebody really had to understand how to grow actual plants, not just sell them. And he would have never been on any list that 
we put, he just, he wouldn't have been. And the bank told us that he was probably one of few that they would have actually lent money to because of how specified this business was, if the owners weren't going to stay on for a pretty significant amount of time. So, yeah. Well, you mentioned strategic buyers versus private Mm -hmm. equity. So just explain what a strategic buyer is and private equity. So a strategic buyer is somebody that when I'm looking at it, it's somebody that is um, in the same vertical or kind of vertical adjacent where the what you offer is a good complement to what they're already offering, or they're looking to branch out into your space. And instead of starting from the ground up, they want to come in and acquire that book of business and the employees and everything um, and machines, if there are any, or um, IP, that sort of thing. Private equity is, there are two types of private equity. There's the buy and hold where they're not looking to just flip the business. They want to see the long-term potential in the business and grow the business. And then there's the kind of the buy and flip private equity groups. And they're coming in and really trying to get that cash flow up as high as possible And they're also obviously still trying to grow the business, but they're very much concerned about that bottom line. And I think that's the negative that you hear about private equity groups a lot is they came in and they stripped everything out because they laid a bunch of people off to get their bottom line higher. Like, I think those are kind of the horror stories that you hear. We have not had any instances with those. And part of it's the size deals we work on. While private equity is dipping down more into the space that we work in, um, they are typically focused on bigger deals. Uh, And the other issue we have with them on occasion is they will put offers together that get our sellers very excited. And their play is they will beat them up during due diligence to get the price down. And that is for me, like one of the first conversations I have with my sellers are you tell me the good, the bad, and the ugly. I don't care what it is. We are going to figure out how to frame the narrative, but we are disclosing because we don't want it discovered during that due diligence period because we don't want the buyer to walk away or try and reduce the price. Right, right. And that, I mean, that can happen anywhere, but it's definitely, you hear the stories more commonly with private equity groups. Like they get you really excited. They get the rest of uh, the competition out of the way because of the offer that they made. Right. And then you end up with, yeah, perhaps less than you would have. So yeah, on the strategic buyer, I think I think maybe this is the buy versus build conversation, like whether or not they kind of build it internally or do they buy someone else who's already doing what we need, like the function, especially, you know, let's take our marketing example, say one of their clients is an advertising agency. I don't know if that's even the right vertical, but you know, but they've been using her marketing agency for that industry because, you know, and, uh, and they're like, you know what, it'd make a ton of sense to 
to have that expertise in-house. And so that would be a strategic buyer who's, you know, working like to, to kind of add that offering internally. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and then on the, the private equity side, um, I heard this term recently, a platform. Yes. What is that? So it's very similar to like the vertical. So it's, they are buying a very specialized set of companies. So they're coming in and they're going to buy multiple marketing companies that can work together. They have either internally or one of the businesses that they're acquiring has a very strong management team in place that's going to oversee everything. And then if, because what happens is if the company doesn't fit in one of those platforms, it won't be a good fit because they don't have that man, they don't have the structure in place to run the business. Platform vertical, I use them interchangeably. So, okay, gotcha. Okay. Right, wrong, or indifferent. But um, to me, they are very, very similar. I had a company that I showed to a smaller private equity group and they were like, if it just made a little bit more money on the bottom line, this would be a great like starter business for a new platform. But because that cash flow wasn't up there it, and it didn't fit in their other platforms, it wasn't going to be the right fit. But it's wild what's going on right now when it comes to like roll-ups and like the private equity groups that are out there and um, just other companies who are acquiring the smaller ones to bring them in because they want the name, they want the phone number, they want the stuff, um, the reputation that goes along with it. You mentioned kind of that minimum revenue number that acquirers are looking for. So let's talk about, cause you know, when you have a, a business come in and you know, they want to sell tomorrow but they don't have that revenue number that's kind of that so they have to get the revenue up and maybe they need to you know increase the the management make a stronger management team and let's say they're three to five years out from that like how does your relationship develop that's kind of a long time to kind of nurse a relationship along like how do you kind of help them kind of get get through that yeah. Well, so it depends on what kind of relationship they want to have with me. So like the first thing I would say, no matter where you're at is having, so the person that wants to sell today, we're really just doing a simpler valuation, but the one that's several years out, like we're going to do a more in-depth business analysis um, and assessment for them. And, and then we'll give like, I review that information with them. And then we talk about, okay, well, how do you want the rest of the relationship to go? Where I can be your project manager, where we are working together on a monthly, quarterly basis to make sure these things are getting checked off that we need you to be doing in order to get you from where you're at today to where you want to be. And part of, like, I'm not an expert in everything. I make no bones about it. Like I can look at a business and say, this is what's going to help make you look better to a buyer, but I'm not the person that you want making sure your IP is protected. It's like, 
That is not my area of expertise, right? You are, <laughs> that is yours. <laughs> so what I would do is put the plan, like the big strategic plan together. And then I would make introductions to the people that I think could actually help them get that done. But then that's their relationship. The you and my client, that is your separate relationship. And then I'm just kind of overseeing it as it goes. Or there are the people that you give them the assessment. They're like, okay, we'll take care of it. And I'm just checking in on them, see how everything's going. And are they making any progress? I mean, does that kind of, you veer into like almost business coach area sometimes? Yeah. So the one where it's uh, more structured and I'm bringing people in and yes, that I would say is more business coaching. And the other one is more of a just checking in and making sure you're doing okay. Um, and just kind of nurturing the relationship a little bit more. And then if they want more, we can build up to that. But there are some people that just want you checking in on them every once in a while, which is fine because I like seeing how people are doing with their businesses. So speaking of the minimums, like what, what is kind of the minimum for you to be interested, for you to be able to get any kind of traction in the market, like what are kind of, are there some basic kind of gotta haves? Yeah, it's so hard because I'm also a sucker for a good story. So if you're the person that wants to sell today, like you have to be profitable with the ad pack. So you might lose 10,000 because Lord knows people don't always want to pay their taxes please just pay your taxes for one to three years. Like, I don't really care about the outside of that, but for one to three years, the return on that, on paying those taxes is so much greater than what you will actually pay in taxes that. As people were like taking their vacations to the business or something, whatever, to just to reduce the net income down to zero. Is that basic? Okay. Yes. We've had people try and run their home remodels through their business. The bank did not like that at all. And so we're very clear, like these are what the bank will really accept. But if you can't prove it to the bank and the buyer, you're not getting, you're not getting that. So just make sure your books are clean. Sorry, that was my tangent on there. And I got very I think it's fundamental. Yeah, it is. It is. Today, I would like to see a couple million dollars in revenue and closer to the $500,000 in cash flow. But will we work with somebody? Like I have a business for sale right now for $200,000. It's a little landscaping company. Are we still going to work with them? Yes. And it's nice because we have that range of like being able to do all those price ranges. We've got buyers for the small ones and we've got buyers for the bigger ones. And then I would say it's an arbitrary cap, but $2 million in EBITDA is probably our cap for where we're going to be. And then cash flow is just ideally for the small guys, you're at 250 in cash flow. But like my biggest deal to date right now is um, like 1.5 million in cash flow that I'm working on. So when it comes time to, how, how does pricing work? Like, do you do that? Or does this the market do that? Or like, how do you? Both. 
and all the things. So, um, so we do a broker opinion of value or a third party valuation. Um, and we look at comps for businesses that are for sale that have been sold, a financing scenario, um, and then rules of thumb for like what industry standards are. And then a 15 point checklist of like, do you have customer concentration? Are your employees trained up? That sort of thing. Depending on what the past financials have been, um, if it's kind of a more upward trajectory, we'll put more weight on the past year's financials as a like a flat average of the three. Um, but if it's pretty steady, we're going to take the average of all three. And then with the financing scenario, especially like the SBA limit for lending is their cap is $5 million. So a lot of the buyers that we work with, even private equity, are still getting third-party financing because the cash is so cheap. So then we have to make sure it's financeable. And that is tricky. So like we feel very confident in our financing scenario, but then we'll also talk to um, bankers and make sure that we're in line with what they're seeing for the industry as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, just from the volume of experience, volume of business, like you kind of know where. Yeah. And so the national average for multiples on cash flow is 2.6. And it has been between 2.4 and 2.6 for businesses that are under $2 million in EBITDA. Once you get above that, um, it's going to get higher, but um, it can't, the debt service a lot of times can't support a 10 times multiple. So you hear these big Wall Street companies, it's a hundred million dollar company. They got 15 times their cash flow. Well, and if you look at the math, that math probably works where the return on the investment makes sense. The debt service, if there was any, makes sense. That will not work for a $500,000 company. So um, it's making sure that now, and that goes back to kind of that earnout. Well, you know, we're on this upward trajectory. Why can't we get a higher multiple? And it's like, because the SBA has some limiting factors that you just, you can't get around entirely. Now, the banks don't like, the SBA doesn't like the term earnout, So you can't have that structured into a deal, but you can say, okay, this is the highest amount that the purchase price, but then to get to that number, it's kind of confusing and convoluted. You still, you have to hit these markers. Would the loan be for a hundred percent of the? No. Okay. Okay. Mm -mm. No. So we are seeing, so in service-based businesses, there's definitely the seller note slash burnout is more common for most of, for it. Uh, for other businesses, uh, we're seeing anywhere between 80 and 90% it close of cash it close for the seller. Uh, now, that was not the case in the 80s. It was like 
the seller was carrying 80% of the notes. The SBA has come a long way in financing it. That being said, the more sellers that come on the market, the so it's been a seller's market for forever. And it's going to be for a while longer. Like nobody can truly predict when that bubble is going to burst. But when it does, that not all businesses are going to be getting that 80 to 90% anymore. And it's going to switch over to the top tier businesses will continue to get that. But there's it because there's just not enough capital out there to actually fund all the deal flow that's going to be coming down the pike. Now the 80 to 90, that was for non-service-based businesses, correct? Yeah, there are some service-based businesses that will also get that at close because in so many ways, every business is service-based, like except for manufacturing. So like a roofing company, technically a service-based business, you might be able to get a higher number on that. So it really, it's very dependent on how the business is currently run and the structure of it. If it the, go up as high as 40% seller note or, or, or. yeah. Um, and we've got one right now where it is a higher seller note, but it's because of we could have got continued to stay in the market and gotten a lower seller note, but the buyer's vision for the company aligned with the sellers for how the employees were going to be taken care of. And the legacy was extremely important. So it made, it was a good fit that way. And that's where I think a lot of times, rightly so, you know, sellers get hung up on the number a little bit, but they might not be picking the right buyer for their business if they're doing that. And so again, it goes back to the planning make sure that in addition to the extra house, the second home and the boat you're getting, you're putting money into a retirement because right now we see a lot of sellers who their retirement is their business. And so it's not, it doesn't give them the flexibility that they might want if a buyer comes in that wants to structure it a little differently because they have to have that money upfront or they have to have that money to pay off their debt. So capital isn't very expensive right now, but if you have a lot of notes on the business and a lot of liabilities on the business that you have to get paid out, not much of that money is going to be going in your pocket. Now this wave kind of seller wave, I feel like I hear that, you know, there are a lot of boomers, you know, of course they're boomers. That's why there's so many of them and they're of a certain age. And so I would think it would almost maybe be flooding the market or how is that affecting? I mean, I'll be honest, six years ago, we thought that that like flood was going to be like right around the corner. And it is like people are tired specifically from COVID, but people are also retiring later. So I went into a business before COVID and The owner was in his 80s, still coming into work most days and did not have an exit strategy and wouldn't even have a conversation about wanting an exit strategy. And I talked to his office manager a little bit about it because I went in in that respect to 
the planning side of things. And she was just like, yeah, I'm just going to come in one day and have to run the business. And I was like, okay, well, at least you're aware (laughs) of what that's going to look like. But uh, so we see people staying in their businesses longer because they don't, a lot of times it's the personal, not the financial side, but the personal emotional side that they haven't planned for. So they're staying in their business longer because they don't know what they're going to do afterwards. And, you know, does your spouse like you enough to spend an additional 40 hours? <laughs> I know. That is, otherwise you tried it like, oh, no, Matt. Right, right. Um, but there are also some really cool, like, nonprofits that help train up new business owners. And the buyer might want them to stay on for a while, but it really is about having that plan in place. But I mean, I will say I'm busier now than I've been since I started. COVID was a wake up call and they were like, I can't go through this again. Like I made it through the recession. I made it, I, we made it through COVID. My numbers are back up. Like I can't do this again. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at the valuation, I guess you just look at the post-COVID numbers, because you wouldn't want it to drag down the value based on. Yeah. So we we go both ways. So if there was a peak because of COVID, because you were selling toilet paper, perhaps. We're normalizing okay. right. that as well. So the banks are being agreeable and most of the buyers are as well. If you can show that you have recovered or are in the upward swing and getting close to those pre-COVID numbers, then it's not, not an issue. If you're struggling to get back, if it's 2022 now and you're still haven't gotten back to pre-COVID numbers, that is going to have a negative impact on the multiple you're going to get. Um, so, and that's, those are really hard conversations to have. I talked to somebody the other day, he was working with somebody else and had been trying to sell his business for like four years. And I looked at his numbers and I'm like, I can't figure out where your broker came up with your cash flow number. Like I have absolutely no idea to the point that this person let me accountant and their accountant and I are going through line by line, their P&Ls and their tax returns, trying to figure out where this guy came up with a number. And we couldn't find the $60,000, which for this particular business, it took him from uh, three times multiple being close to $700,000 down to maybe 525. And that's a really painful conversation to have. And it's because his expectations and he had had buyers come through like people excited and he kept getting what he would call low ball offers. So that's why it's also really important for business owners. When you're working with someone, you need to look at that person should be sending you out what they're presenting so that you have an understanding of like what numbers are being used and how 
like you shouldn't be out to market and not understand how the numbers came to be. Well, that brings us to due diligence, I think. So, yes. So everyone, you know, has, I mean, you know, one of the other scary things that people think is might tank their business, which I, I guess potentially a good if it goes bad for itself, but due diligence. And so people have a real fear of it. And it is one, you know, has mythical kind of proportions at this point. So tell us what, what kind of what the reality of due diligence is and the best way to prepare for due diligence. Plan ahead of time. So what we do for our clients is I have an obnoxious due diligence list. It is, it is what they fear they're going to get. And I say, you're going to have some of this. You are not going to have all of it. Let's start at the beginning before we have a buyer. Let's start pulling this stuff together because what it is really overwhelming is when you get to that LOI phase and you don't have any of it. And then it's a mad rush to try and get everything together. I'll just say the LOI is letter of intent from here. From, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Part of it depends on the size of the company that you are. So for larger companies, if real estate's involved and there's going to be more due diligence that they actually have, nobody in my space has audited financials, one person and, and his accounting firm is unclear why he has audited financials. Like, I mean, They'll do the work to get paid, but it's not necessary. So especially buyers coming from corporate America, their first question is usually, are the financials audited? No, they are not. And with what you're willing to invest, you are not going to find a business with audited financials. And it's not going to be gap accounting most of the time. There are going to be standard practices that their accountant uses, but the chances of it being true gap are also not very high. And so that typically is a bit of a pill for at least the corporate America guys and gals to swallow. If you have run a good business, it shouldn't be that bad. It's just a lot. So you know, set your reporting up so that you can do monthly financials so that they can look at the trends. Make sure that you just document, document, document everything. And the more granule you can break down your costs for your services, the better. I just love that stuff. If a bank's involved, we'll love to be able to see that sort of thing too. So it can be really useful information. And a lot of it after the setup, the reporting you should be able to automate pretty easily. So it's not going to be that much work to do. There are some people that give us like some buyers that give us like 10 things. It also depends on what kind of buyer it is. If it is somebody that has a really large law firm that they're using or a big accounting firm, their due diligence list is going to be a little bit I'll rival different. yours. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. Um, and again, mine is the worst case scenario. So if we can come up with, again, most of my clients are not going to have 50% of that list, but if we can get what they have, that's fine and take it one bite at a time. 
because don't look at it and say, oh my gosh, I have to have this by tomorrow. It's like, no, we've got a little bit of time for you to start pulling all this. Yeah, if a business owner or if a buyer is using a bigger law firm or a bigger CPA firm, there's just going to be a bigger due diligence request. But again, you only have what you have. So just, again, it's trying to get as much prepped as you can so that it's not like death by a thousand cuts. And it's just one like one thing after another. It's nice when we're able to just say, here's the due diligence we have available. Let us know what questions, what questions yeah. you have. Yeah. And, you know, you definitely don't want anything to come up during due diligence, right? Because you want to get ahead of that. And that's part of your packaging and, and what you do. And of course, yeah. And when, you know, if you're actively marketing your business, you don't want to be distracted from the business of running your business, right? Because that's what need to be focused on so that's fantastic so hopefully um people understand like you know the benefit of working with a broker which i you know i'm a huge fan of experts so using experts for things and you know there's some places where diy is fine selling your business is not one of those places so you definitely want to work with professionals for that and there's a gazillion too many benefits obviously that you can count here um so thank you so much kate so as you know uh, Think Beyond IP is has a mission to uh, help the economy work for more people. And one of the ways that I do that is through working with women, because I think that putting wealth in the hands of women can change the world. And so I would love to hear if there is an organization or a person who's inspired you by helping uh, economic justice and helping women and children. Um, so we actually, last year I helped co-found a nonprofit, um, called Everybody Plays. And so our, our mission is to bridge the inequity in sports for kids. So we help with, uh, registration fees. We'll pay for equipment. We'll pay for summer camps, um, because, sports had such a profound influence on my life and impact on my life that um, just making sure that any kid that wants that opportunity can have it and they're not hindered by the fact that it is really expensive to play sports right now and most of our local areas so this is in Dayton most Dayton Ohio most of the um, local sports like school sports programs are pay to play and if you and what we do is we go 300% above the poverty guidelines and the reason for that is there are programs out there to help um the people that are below the poverty guideline but there aren't as many organizations that say, oh, you're a family of four and you're making $78,000 a year. Like that's not, if you look at costs for daycare, cost of food right now, yeah, like all of a sudden, like that might cover the basics and maybe a family vacation or two, but um, it doesn't allow you to have a lot of the extras. So we, again, want to be able to help as broad a group of people as we can. That is fantastic. I love that. 
And so I will put that in the show notes so everyone can find out more about Everybody Plays. And so also, I think you have an an offer for our audience as well that you'd like yes. to Yes. So anybody that sends me an email and references this podcast, I will do a free assessment for them. We'll spend a lot of time together to get some of the information provided. But again, it'll give you a good basis for where you're at today and what you can do to really improve and grow your business in order to be able to successfully exit it. That is amazingly generous. Thank you so much. And so I know you're located in Dayton, Ohio, but you work with everywhere. I will go anywhere. I travel. I travel well. Um, yeah. So the farthest West I have is a client out in Arizona. Um, and then I'm talking to one in Idaho. So I really, I'm not kidding about the fact that I will go anywhere. That is fantastic. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you again, Kate, for being with me today. It has been so eye-opening. I know the audience got a ton of, ton of information and value from this. And uh, yeah, and thanks again. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And it was great to talk to you. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Have a great day. Bye. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening. Do not forget to check out the show notes for links to connect with today's guest and for the resources, offers, and organizations that we discussed. You can also find the links at hourlytoexit.com backslash podcast. If you got value from this episode, please subscribe. And I'd be so grateful for a review. I'm here to support your journey.